electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And thanks a lot, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for Scott Wapner. It is a sell-off on Wall Street, a strong jobs report reviving fears about inflation and the Fed's rate hike plan. What is the bigger risk right now, inflation or recession? And what do investors do from here? We're going to debate that and much more with our investment committee. With me today, right here on set, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, and also with CNBC senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Steve, great to have you here. All right, let's get a check on the markets right now. What's really been a very wild week. The major average is still on pace for weekly gains despite today's big drop. It's pretty much close to session lows right now. The Dow down about a percent and a half. The S&P down more than 2%. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down more than 3%. We're also watching, of course, the 10-year yield. That yield hitting 3.9%, its highest level in more than a week. Remember last week, it just touched just a tick above 4%. And that's where we begin today. Great to have all you here. A lot to talk about. Jenny, I'm going to begin with you. The big question on the minds of the market right now, does this cement, does this cement the idea of a 75-point basis hike in the Fed's next meeting? And does this move all the talk about a pause or a pivot off the table? I don't think it moves everything off the table. I think it does cement the 75 basis points. I, I think that was in there no matter what. And, I, and we know that the Fed's going to act aggressively. So... In terms of a pause or a pivot, we know that they're going to be data dependent. And I think unlike almost everyone else out there, I actually give the Fed a lot of credit. I give them a lot of credit for using jawboning as an, as an incredibly useful tool. And I think a lot of work's done. So I think they're going to do 75 now, but then I think we just need to watch what data they get. And, and I don't even really like the word pivot because that, that makes us all think that it's just a turn on your tail and run in the other direction. But I think that they can move away or soften, you know, or there's just a lot that they can do. So, so I think they're still open for a shift. And yeah, I think 75 basis points is in the cards. So it's like a famous movie quote. You're saying there's still a chance. All right, Jim, I'm going to come over to you. I mean, I, a lot of people are thinking pause, pivot off the table. This is cementing it. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I agree. Uh, the three P's, pause, put, pivot, forget them. Um, I, I forgot them a long time ago. This is a question of how, how much more raising are they going to do. And I think the way you've got to look at this, and I, I think Jenny alluded to this, is you know what matters more than anything is what inflation is doing. I, I don't think we can really expect a benign inflation print next week, simply because owner-equivalent rent is such a big part of it. It's a lagging indicator. I mean, that's, that's just a known quotient. But we also see in the Case-Shiller indications from last week that housing prices themselves are rolling over, and it's likely that rent is going to come down. What what this means is time. It takes time. Now, look, Frank, when I go forward two months from now to the end of the year, two months, not very long, here's the following things that are likely to have happened. Let's say the Fed Fund's futures market is right. You've got another 125 basis points of tightening. You're somewhere between four and a quarter and four and a half on the Fed Fund's rate. That, that could be all she wrote. Could be. Now, I know the Fed's talking about going further, but it could be all she wrote. We're going to have two more inflation reports, actually probably three by that point in time. Uh, and you'll be seeing definitively at that point in time, I believe that inflation has peaked. 
The election's going to be downstream of us. Third quarter earnings are going to be downstream of us. The point that I'm driving at is two months from now, two and a half months from now, you're going to have a heck of a lot more clarity than you have right now. Right now, we're twisting in the wind. What's the Fed going to do? What's earnings going to do? What's inflation going to do? I'm, we, I can sit tight for two months and let events unfold. All right, we're just going to win about a few things, but a couple of things we do know, Joe. We know wages increased 5% year over year in this jobs report. We know oil's moved up about 7 bucks a barrel just over the last week after those OPEC cuts. So we got some pretty definitive data on two things that are very inflationary. So in your mind, pause, pivot, just off the table? So let me ask you, if the Federal Reserve Monday morning were to announce an emergency rate hike of 150 basis points, And at the end of that statement, they said, we are not going to, we're going to pause until March of 2023. The market would probably go down on Monday. But guess what? By the end of the week, I think the market would be higher because the market just wants to get this over with already. The market has already priced in the certainty of 75 basis points in November. The Federal Reserve has told us what they're going to do. Now, my personal opinion, which I've said on air, is that okay, give us another 125 to 150 basis point and stop no matter where inflation is. Because maybe what you're actually administering is not working and bringing down inflation. And we got to look to the supply side. We don't need to break everything in the process. So I'm a little perplexed by the emotional nature, but it's consistent with the way the market usually is. The market is an emotional mechanism. But I'm not really sure what we heard today changes anything from what we already knew, they were going to raise 125 to 150 basis mm-hmm. points. I just wish we'd get it over with already. Joe, I, I'd, I'd love it. You take the two and a half months I was just talking about and compress it to next Monday. I'm all for it. I'm all I for it. the motion. I don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> but I'm all yeah. for it. Well, we have a quorum here. Unfortunately, the it's, Fed it's, makes it's, the decision. It's almost, it's almost as if, you know, you, know, you have a, rot, a, a rotted tooth and you, and you go to the dentist and the dentist says, ah, come back next week. I'll pull it a little. I'm not going to pull it all the way out. Come back next week. Just pull the tooth out already. I'm trying to read Steve's expression. He yeah. looks dour. I got to <laughs> be honest. You know, let's stop playing guessing games. You want to bring in senior economics <laughs> reporter Steve Leisman. Uh, tough entry with that metaphor of the tooth being pulled out there, Steve. But I mean, before we get to you, I know you're going to translate Fed speak. I don't know anybody that has more insight about the Fed than you. But first, we want to go to a soundbite really quick. This is Scott Minard yesterday talking to our Scott <clears throat> Wapner on Closing Bell OT. Here's his comments on the Fed's hawkishness. The environment is ripe for a crisis, and, um, you know, if the Fed keeps, um, you know, its hawkish um, communication up, I think that that we're quite likely uh, to end up having something break in the financial markets. All right, so Scott Miner saying he sees something breaking in the financial markets. Important to add that he also added that he thinks the market is going to force a pivot on the Fed, and he thinks that pivot is only a few weeks away. Steve, a lot to digest there. Um, well, I want to be clear about what Scott Minard is and is not saying. Um, upon further questioning, Scott said that there are some illiquidities in the market, but it is not at a level of a critical systemic risk at this moment. Mm-hmm. Scott's comments were prospective, um, and you cannot rule out the possibility. However, um, I, we had Governor Waller yesterday say that he doesn't see that as a likelihood. He thinks banks are well capitalized. He sees markets functioning well. I did some reporting of my own on this issue, and I talked to several people, and I said, hey, if the financial crisis in March of 2020, when it comes to illiquidity, were tens on the Richter scale, how are markets now? And they said a five or a six. Some pockets of illiquidity out there. Whether or not this keeps going, look, 
The trouble is the Fed has to get control of inflation. It's interesting that you give me that minor quote after Joe talked over here, because one of the reasons they don't want to do the 150 in one fell swoop is they want to give markets time to adjust to what's coming. Oh, they're adjusting. There's stuff, <laughs> they're adjusting. There's stuff that rolls over piece by piece, and people have to go out into the market and make some decisions and play some paper and do some stuff. If you woke up on Tuesday morning in an emergency meeting, which, folks, is not happening, by the way. Y'all got freaked out last week when the Fed was going to have this uh, regularly scheduled meeting that it has every other Monday, uh, and we had to do some work on telling you it was not an emergency meeting. So it's not happening. If they were to do that, conditional future is the tense that I'm talking about here. Um, uh, Mark, the, the, the people who have to place this paper would be severely dislocated, and then Minard's comments would come true. The Fed's MO here is to uh, tell people where they're going and then kind of do it, not gradually anymore. It's doing it pretty good leaps right now, but it's trying to avoid just the meltdown that Scott Minard's talking about. All right, well, let's unpack some of these Scott Minard comments, and of course, we want to get some of your insights, mm-hmm. Steve. When Scott Miner says that something could break, what is he talking about? What's likely to break under these current conditions? The trouble is that Scott and nobody knows what he's talking about, because <laughs> if we did, it wouldn't break. Right. Is that there were all sorts of things that we found out about. How well did you know what a CLO and a CDO squared was um, in 2007 before you had to know about it in 2008? Funny story, well, I, I found out about it by accident in the years before. These were businesses that were growing. Those things broke, and nobody really understood where they were. The, the, the possibilities out there that there is risk that's out there in the shadow banking system where, as far as the Fed is concerned, it's okay if that stuff blows up, but not if it's connected back into the banking system. That's the concern, and we don't understand those connections. It was one of the great revelations and horrible revelations of the financial crisis was there was risk in the shadow banking system that people thought was remote from the banking system. It ended up not being remote. So there are possibility of something. Give us an example. um, The uh, uh, off balance sheet items of the banks that they thought were off balance sheet that for reputational risk, the banks like Citibank and Bank of America had to bring back on balance sheet was an example of that today. It could be the mortgage markets. It could be the when-issued mortgage markets. There's a lot of paper out there that, you know, is, is prospective and, and puts and output. I talked to somebody the other day who's out there now. You know, they're out there in the ETF market, the corporate ETF market, buying puts and options, which they find to be more liquid than the options market. That's something that we don't know that may not be stress tested. Those are the sorts of things. But just to be real clear... A lot of people, I think, want to make a direct connection between what happened in England and the United States. I think for the moment, because that was a real screw up by the English fiscal authority, um, I don't see the analog to the United States right now. Yeah. Sure. Amos, last D- words. Does the, Federal Reserve, does the Federal Reserve have concern or care if something breaks and it's not in their living room, if it breaks somewhere else in the rest of the world? Because that's what's more likely, given the conditions we have right now here in the U.S., the strength of the banking system and the balance sheets. That's more likely to happen. How much would they care about that? I, I think that's a great question, Joe. And I, I think one way to think about it is if you're driving a train mm-hmm. and there's something screwed up on the track mm-hmm. next to you, I don't think you care. Um, The Fed's main concern, not main concern, but big concern, is their ability to conduct monetary policy. 
a systemic breakdown not only creates all kinds of problems uh, beyond that, but it inhibits their ability to do monetary policy. That's why what the Bank of England showed us last week was that financial stability trumps monetary policy. It's why they reversed course. Okay. They couldn't conduct monetary policy in the presence of markets that were melting down. So, Steve, are emerging markets that parallel track that you're talking about? That it's Fed's another great, great point, but Frank, I should have brought that up. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, emerging markets is another potential place, emerging market debt. Um, I know that certain people at the IMF, people at the IMF are looking at these issues, trying to understand, is there systemic risk in this? But just to more fully answer Joe's question, it's whether or not it comes back into the regulated banking system. Right. The mortgage brokers, I mean, God love them, they can blow up tomorrow, and I hate using that term too. Um, and what? Other people who are not in the regulated bank system, they can experience losses. If it's not at the banking system, I think the Fed will care less. All right, Steve Leesman. And, and sorry, one more thing, which is Go for it. what they do want to make sure is that markets clear. So that's the kind of thing. If March of 2020, it's funny. I don't have to report, Frank, the systemic risk story. I don't really have to make calls on this because people call me and they say, Steve, the 30 year is not clearing and that's really screwed up. And that's what happened in March of 2020 when on the run or off the run U.S. 30 year treasuries, you can't find a bid for those. That's not where we are today. And it's very important people to understand that. Steve Leesman, senior economics reporter. We appreciate the insight as Pleasure. always. Thanks. Joe, I'm going to come over to you. You were, you were saying, does the Fed care if it's something that breaks that's not in their front yard or not on their train track? We're going to keep that metaphor going. One thing you have to look at is the dollar. It's risen about 2% since Wednesday. It wasn't Twitter that made it move higher, obviously. Uh, that was the big news that day. But that could definitely have a big impact on emerging markets. The rise of the dollars really hit emerging markets. And it's also hit a lot of companies that depend on their revenues from emerging markets. So without question, Frank, and, and we've talked over the last several days about the importance of the U.S. dollar and the unfortunate correlation. And I know it frustrates Jenny and it frustrates Jim because you like to look at companies from the bottom up. But really, this is such a macro environment since last week. Let's remember something. OK, the market so far month to date is 2 percent higher. Mm -hmm. I think we're forgetting that fact. The S&P is actually 2 percent higher month to date. Why is the S&P 2 percent higher? Because on September 28th, you have that perceived peak in the U.S. dollar. Even this morning, intraday, the U.S. dollar began to kind of break down a little bit, and that's when you saw equities begin to lift. So it's unfortunate, but there's this correlation right now. Algorithms are put into place, and everything is pricing off of where the U.S. dollar goes. Jim, wait one second. I know you're, you're waiting to jump. I want to bring up one other just, just information data point here. Uh, BTIG's Krinsky out with a note earlier uh, saying, we continue to see downside risk to the markets broadly until we see either a meaningful turn down in rates the dollar or a sustainable move above 3,900 or 4,000 on the S&P. Uh, I just want to get your take on that. I know we're, we're, we're stopping you in your tracks just no, for a no, second. No, that's okay. But, I mean, you're bringing in an interesting fact from Jonathan, who's been very right this year, friend of the show. You brought up a fact about, you know, where markets are in this month. That's a very nice fact. I'm going to give you another couple of other facts. We hear what Jonathan's saying. He's been right a lot. We created 260,000 jobs last year, last month. Like, wait a second. All right? And I'm looking at the that's Atlanta a hard landing. No, I, 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 know, I know what you're saying, but just follow me for a second here. I'm looking at the Atlanta Fed GDP right now, and I'm looking at it because they're going to update it any second. Now, hopefully, they're not going to take the 2.7% GDP growth that they're forecasting for the third quarter. That forecast being as of Wednesday, hopefully, they're not going to stab me in the back and take it to, like, negative 1.0, but I don't think they will. And the point that I'm driving at here is we are talking rightly about the dollar, financial stability, what the Fed's going to do. Lost beneath this is the strength of the U.S. economy. 
economy. And it is really quite strong. It's a cushion. I'm not saying, Joe, your point is well made about a hard landing. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this does anything other than incentivize the Fed to raise rates. But what I am saying is we do not have the condition of hundreds of thousands of job losses a month, of people being laid off and unable to find work. And I'm telling you, that's a positive that's being overlooked in all of this. It's a positive for consumption and profits. I mean, it's just a fact. Unemployment rate going down. Some of that's people leaving the job market. Uh, Can I put in one more data point to toss it over to you, Jenna? Jenny, um, BMO's uh, Brian Belsky out with a note saying today we continue to firmly believe that the S&P 500 will finish the year higher than current levels, contrary in view, I believe, with Q3 earnings results potentially being the catalyst. We keep hearing people say earnings estimates need to be revised to the downside. He's saying that's going to be the catalyst for an upside move. Um, it could be. And I, I like the ambiguity of higher than these levels. I would think he's probably right. But it also could be not saying too much, right? We are down still 22% on the year. So what's higher than these levels? Down 18% on the year? You know what? I'll take it all day long. Would I like more? Yes. But I think the whole Q3 earnings thing, it's going to be dicey. And if you look at things like Nike and FedEx and CarMax, who all reported late and actually had a look at August in their earnings reports, it was pretty ugly. So as we go into this earnings, I think it's going to be really interesting. We could see the healthcare companies start report, and that could be a real calm in the storm. We could see energy actually report great numbers. And believe it or not, energy is up to 11% of S&P 500 earnings. So if they continue to do well, they're taking up more and more of a positive, as a positive kind of foundational support for S&P earnings. There could be really ugly things out there, too. I don't know what they are. So I'm not sure how S&P 500 earnings are going to look for the third quarter, but I'm probably not as I'm a little more trepidatious than he is. Like I'm buckling my seatbelt and battening down the hatches for the next three or four weeks. But haven't we continued to get earnings surprises? I mean, the earnings estimates go down and then people beat. Obviously, it's on lower estimates, but the estimates are pretty low right now. If I may, this is the classic. It's not a stock market. It's a market, market of stocks. stocks. Jenny yeah, yeah. knows that. Joe knows that. Frank knows that. But, like, you know, we're going to get Delta on Wednesday. Right. What do you think Delta is going to say? First off, Ed Bastian is a guy who wears his emotions on his sleeve and in how he speaks. And he's probably going to tell us what United and American are saying, which is that fourth quarter uh, uh, bookings are tracking above 2019 levels. Well, I recognize this is only one sector of the economy. You know, autos, you saw those General Motors numbers from. Uh, earlier this week. What I'm saying, I don't want to go through every sector. Yeah, Nike's got a problem. Target's got a problem. We but know they've that. already told you, too. They've already told us. What we're not really talking about is there's some positive news out there, too. I think the truth about earnings comes towards the end of the month when we hear from a lot of the mega cap mm-hmm. companies. Uh, right. There has been the resiliency. That's where a lot of investors have the perceived safety. And ultimately, if the market is to continue to decline from where it was in September, those are the companies that are going to be utilized as a source of funds. I think what's going to be hard about earnings season is that what we're seeing now is we're seeing very asymmetrical, asynchronous responses. And so you're mm-hmm. seeing things like on the day that FedEx, I think it was September 16th, on the day that FedEx said, hey, everything's terrible, JetBlue pre-announced positively. And so as we come out of the real worst of the pandemic, right, when we first had the pandemic, all we knew is that all earnings were going to be better because earnings had been revised. And now we're having these reverberations, but they're completely asynchronous with each other. And that's what's so hard about what's going on right now, because you don't know when you're going to get a Target and a Walmart that are terrible and a Lulu and a Ralph Lauren that are terrific. So wake me up on October 31st to the <laughs> point you're both making. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, we got, you know, four more weeks and, of dealing with you know, And we might get some flowers delivered, but we're probably going to get some black eyes, too. And how those all net out is going to be really 
Really exhausting. <laughs> uh, we're going to continue that question after the break. But before we get there, uh, the investment committee is making move. Jenny, in fact, you are. You have a new buy. Right. So we bought Seagate yesterday. If you want to buy it today, you get it 3% cheaper than I bought it. Um, but Seagate makes hard disk drive storage. So if you believe that we will continue to back up data and continue to consume in tremendous amounts of data and store them in the cloud, they all end up in data centers on huge hard disk drive storage. These stocks, this is actually the third time that I've owned Seagate. And these stocks, Seagate, Western Digg, they are incredibly cyclical. Their businesses are incredibly cyclical, but they are professionally managed businesses and their supply and demand gets out of whack. The stocks get out of whack. And eventually, if you believe that supply demand will reach an equilibrium and that they will stay profitable, now is the time that you buy Seagate. So they should earn about $5 a share next year. What covers the dividend? The dividend's 5%, by the way. It's trading at about 10 times earnings. If I'm a little bit wrong, they have a very long history of cover of keeping up the earnings through thick and thin. So while you see the stock price go like this, the dividend goes like this, and you can kind of count on it, you're buying it down over 50% from its high. I don't know if it ever decide, deserved to be as high as it was, but it certainly deserves in the long term to be a lot higher now, and you put 5% Could you say the same pocket. for Western Digital? Yeah, except for they don't have a dividend anymore, so that wasn't something that I could look at. You know, my goal is to create a 5% dividend income stream mm -hmm. on a portfolio, so I really have a more narrow um, look. But yeah, I, I think Western Digi could treat it the same. Joe's moving ahead right here. We're going to talk semis after the break. The semis have soared this week, but now another major warning, this time from AMD. Is the worst still not over for this group? The invest investment committee weighs in. That's coming up next on Halftime. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to HAP. As you can see, the market's near session lows. All right, turning our attention to the semis, they had a huge rally this week, but they're a major drag on the markets today. After AMD's latest warning, that stock hitting a new 52-week low. In fact, four of the top 10 worst stocks in the S&P, they're chip-related names. So what does the latest red flag from AMD mean for the sector from here? Let's break it down. Joe, you own AMD, as we just mentioned, giving a warning down about 11% right now. What does it mean? I wish it wasn't in my portfolio. Uh, it's a complete disaster. I mean, there are some times that you could sit here on the desk and you could make an attempt to fundamentally defend a story. Yes, Lisa Sue, an unbelievable steward of, of, of a company, one of, the, one of the best CEOs in the world. We get that. We understand the company uh, and their, their dominance in the semiconductor space. 
But this is a company that just has not performed. And quite candidly, I should not still be in this name. Um, to the degree that I've lost a little bit of my risk management process, I will definitely say I'm guilty on that. This is a stock that's now down 57%. It's back to the level where it broke out from in July of 2020. So unfortunately, I'm going to hold the position at the end of the month. Uh, there'll be a rebalance and reconstitution for uh, my quality momentum index in the Joti ETF. AMD is in that and we'll, uh, we'll address that accordingly one way or the other, and I'll respond thereafter. Yeah, you know, Joe, we're looking at a pretty dramatic uh, forecast for Q3 right there, about a billion dollars less than the original guidance. So one question I want to ask you, um, are you taking into account the fact that PC demand genuinely is lower? That's not just an excuse here. There was a oh, super cycle that's... of PC buying during the pandemic. People bought computers. I mean, doesn't that account for some of these problems? That's not a surprise either, right? I, I, I don't think it's something that we woke up this morning and, and, and said, oh, wow, uh, AMD <laughs> alerted us to a condition <laughs> that we didn't know was already in place. We, we knew that already. We, we know that. And we know that that's going to be the case for a lot of others in the industry as we move through the earnings season. Uh, but, you know, in, in the idiosyncratic nature of just looking at AMD, it's somewhat surprising because this was the company you thought was best in breed and allowed you a degree of resiliency, and it, it clearly f fell apart. All right, well, Intel down 4.5% as well. Jenny, well, I mean, what's your take on this? Also warning about supply chain, but everybody warns about supply chain. So I want to focus on a little bit bigger picture, which is, the, I think, the, to me, the problem with AMD, and the problem for me, and by the way, Joe, you know, I, I feel your pain <laughs> because I own the Intel and it's really no better. Um, but what kept me in Intel and kept me away from AMD and, and NVIDIA were the valuations. And so I think when we say valuation matters, valuation has always mattered, people think that only means on the buy side. And, and I think I get pushed back where people think, oh, well, Jenny, you know, if it's 10 times earnings, that doesn't mean it's a great story. But what I've always meant from that was just because it's a great story doesn't mean it deserves an 80 times multiple. And so that's kind of the problem here, which is these companies, they're great companies. They actually are. They make essential, incredible products that we all need. So the bulk of our semi-exposure, Intel's a tiny, tiny, tiny position. The bulk of our semi-exposure is actually through Teradyne, which does testing, and AMAT, which makes equipment. And, and so as long-term investors, if you believe that this world will stay totally reliant on semiconductors, and you take a little bit of that supply demand and things getting out of whack and then recalibrating and finding equilibrium, if you believe that, these are terrific buys. And if we're wrong by the timing a little, on a little bit, the reality is, is they're enormously profitable, you buy the ones that are at the right valuations. AMAT's at 11 times. Teradyne's at 16 times. They have great growth prospects in the future. So if you can buy them at the right valuations, grit your teeth, bear it for a while, ride them out for the long term, there's a lot of money to be made here. Um, but the valuation well, is well, really Jim, critical. Really quick, you didn't grit your teeth on all your, your chip picks. You, you sold NVIDIA back in August, but you're still in NXP and Qualcomm. So are, yeah. you, are you still bullish on semis, even though so, you made that sale in August? Yeah, I am bullish on semis. I'm completely in agreement with Jennifer. Jennifer? Jennifer. Wow. wow. Even on my yeah. birth certificate, it's formal. It's got Joseph? Okay. I don't even know. You know what? Sorry. Josh started it. I know, but Josh that was, that was, just, that was a brain James. aneurysm. I apologize. Okay. Every Jenny knows I love her. Everybody knows I love Jenny. I love Joe, too. Anyway, continue on. Late 70s or mid-70s reggae master. Jimmy Cliff wrote a song, The Harder <laughs> They Come, The Harder They Fall. It's a great song. It totally applies here. Um, it's all about valuation. NVIDIA, AMD, they rode this wave up to multiples that at the beginning of the year, AMD was 48. Now it's around 20. This is just the way it goes. I look at NXP and Qualcomm, and, you know, they didn't have those multiples. They're down much less than the SMH overall, the semiconductor index overall. It's just 
the harder they come, the harder they fall. They won't sing the song. So to that sing point, it. to that point, you're talking about valuation. We began the show talking about recession. AMD mm-hmm. is full confirmation that we are in the middle of a valuation recession in the market. Sure. And that valuation recession began when? In Q4 of 2020. If you look at the Russell 1000 hyper growth index, that's exactly when the P.E. peak was at 40. It's been in straight decline ever since. It's now rolling through the rest of the market. And without question, we are in the middle of a valuation recession. And you're bringing up an interesting point, which echoes what Ed Yardeni says, which he keeps saying rolling recessions. And I think this might be the way this environment plays out, which is that we have a recession in semis. We all have a recession in housing, but it may not all combine at once. We may not get hit and hurt all at once at the same time. So you just have these like rolling, rolling experiences. And clearly semis are in one now. All right, well, s- well, speaking of recession talk, FedEx shares, they're falling in the last hour in a headline. The company expects lower volume than forecasted. And we just received a statement from the company. I got this from one of their spokespeople. Says, as described in FedEx Corp's recent first quarter earnings release, weakening macroeconomic conditions are causing volume softness. We are constantly collaborating with the customers on their projected shipping needs and making adjustments as necessary to ensure our network is prepared to deliver outstanding service for this year's peak season and beyond. Let's bring in someone who owns FedEx, Michael Farr. He joins us now on the phone. Michael, thank you for being here. Thanks very much. So speaking of recession, uh, CEO Rod Subramanian, he, he warned of recessionary talk uh, just about mid-September, saying that there was a recession coming. He said uh, softness in Asia, softness in the U.S., softness in Europe. What's your take on this last or excuse me, this latest release? Right. I think what we're seeing is consistent with kind of a, an economy that's slowing down. It's consistent with what we saw from AMD today. They're, they're seeing a reduction in demand, and FedEx is adjusting. So their report was in keeping with their pre-announcement, of course, at down 33% where they readjusted. I think we're seeing a trend here. What I don't, you know, that's going to be endemic to all companies uh, as economic activity slows. What I don't think we have is a company that's really broken. We have a company that's adjusting. So uh, it's awfully painful, and I'm certainly not happy about it. And this is a very difficult baptism by fire for a new CEO. Uh, I think you're you're putting it lightly there, Michael. So question, are you going to reposition yourself when it comes to FedEx? Um, How do you see FedEx and how do you see its rival UPS right now? Well, FedEx, uh, I think, you know, has had uh, challenges that we were hoping would catch up with some of the positioning in UPS. Uh, A lot of the B2C stuff that um, that UPS doesn't, particularly the international stuff, makes FedEx vulnerable on sort of a broader scale. Um, we're giving them more time here because we haven't seen uh, we haven't seen a fundamental, I guess. Mike, we're having some issues with your, your phone there. I think you might be in a bad cell phone area. So we appreciate you calling in. Um, also, just want to note right now, FedEx shares down 2% on a report that they're going to warn about weakening volumes. Actually, UPS down even more, down about 3.5%, uh, assuming on sympathy there. Uh, again, FedEx down about 2% on that report. All right, Michael, thank you again for calling in. All right, oil topping $90 and energy stocks on pace for their best week since November of 2020. What's the trade from here? We're going to break down the committee's top picks for your portfolio. Halftime, back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? 
or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Halftime. We are at session lows right now. The Dow down more than 500 points right now. The S&P down 2.5%. The NASDAQ, the hardest hit, down 3.5%. Also have to note bond yields right now at 3.86. They've been rising today, up and down just a bit, but still considerably higher than we were just a week ago. Uh, but do remember, we also touched over 4% on the 10-year yield a week ago. Something we're going to continue to watch. All right, turning our, our attention now to energy, the only sector that's actually up today. Oil prices are back above 90 bucks a barrel. It's up more than 16% this week, and that puts it on pace for its best week since March. Joe, I'm going to turn over to you. I mean, you're, up, you're our energy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the oil prices right now, of course, a catalyst was those OPEC cuts, um, natural gas demand also rising. What's your outlook on energy right now? I still think you need to maintain an overweight to the sector. Uh, that that's rooted just in the the extreme supply to to demand and balance that currently exists and can can over the coming months be threatened even further. Um, you've seen so far month to debt uh, energy equities up nearly 15 percent. I don't think that whether you're a trader or an investor, you need to accept a higher degree of beta in the energy space. I think you're going to be fine allocating towards an, an ExxonMobil, a ConocoPhillips, an EOG, uh, a Phillips 66, uh, or my favorite name, which is was PXD, Pioneer Natural. They're all outperforming so far month to date. So I, I, I think it's it's right now it's 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 almost an easy layup, and that's where the momentum is in the market. Uh, and there's all the reason to stay committed to an overweight position. All right, a lot of energy and oil ownership here on the desk. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. I saw you you're looking over at, at uh, Joe when he was talking there. Do you have some, some thoughts in mind? I'm, I'm in complete agreement just from a fundamental point of view. Uh, supply and demand is out of balance, and it's going to stay out of balance for quite some time. And in the immediate future, you have the prospects of the EU's uh, sanctions and, and uh, withdrawing from buying any uh, Russian oil, or at least trying to cap the price at which it's bought. Um, you've got China potentially coming out of its COVID shutdowns. Uh, and you've got at some point the uh, releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve are going to come to a stop. All of that's going to exacerbate an underlying supply-demand imbalance. So I agree with Joe. You're supposed to be overweight energy here. Yeah, you know what? Joe's calling energy a layup. But one thing I want to talk to you about, Jenny, is one of your holding Shell. Out with a warning just yesterday about profits, about margins. I mean, why Shell when everyone else seems to be on the right path? Well, I think Shell has different European exposure than everyone else. Um, but they're still going to make a ton of money. And I think when you look at energy broadly, here's where I am, which is you definitely want to be overweight. We have about 16% in our equity income strategy in energy, and that's served us well, but it's also grown. But here's what I'm looking at right now. Right now I'm looking at the next 12 months of earnings growth for all the S&P 500 sectors and the forward PE. Energy still has the lowest PE of any of the sectors in the S&P 500, and it has positive, it says right now, about 6.5% forward earnings growth expected. That's a pretty unique combination for this kind of market. So I think you want to hold out, hide out, hold out. Shell specifically, we still own it. We think that they're fine for the long run. We'll make a ton of money, but we also feel that way about the rest of our holdings. We also own Pioneer, Devon, Chevron, and then we own a bunch of the pipeline companies like Kinder, and Williams. And I think if you want to be more conservative, you can own the pipeline companies. If you want to have more exposure to the actual price of energy, you can own the majors. So, yeah, important to know as, 
Uh, important note as we hit session lows, the XLE uh, energy ETF up, up to over a half a percent right now. All right, let's get to the headlines now with our Bertha Coombs. Hey there, Bertha. Hey, Frank, here's what's happening at this hour. The Justice Department suspects that former President Trump might still be in possession of classified documents that he removed from the White House. The top DOJ officials have reportedly communicated that concern to Trump's lawyers, people familiar with the matter telling NBC News that. The DOJ has said that they have empty envelopes marked classified, but it's unclear if there is other evidence of missing documents that may be in possession of the former president. Joint military drills between the U.S. and South Korea continued today in a further response to missile launches from North Korea. Earlier this week, North Korea launched a nuclear-capable missile over Japan and tested other ballistic missiles on Thursday. The U.S. and allies have conducted naval drills and joint military operations in response to the escalation. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams has declared a city emergency in response to an influx of migrants. The emergency order will help the city better prepare and respond to people arriving in the city. Adams said he expects potentially 100,000 people could arrive in the city and need assistance over the coming months. Halftime returns after this. All right, time now for our call of the day. Goldman Sachs getting an upgrade to outperform at KBW. The firm hiking its price target to $429 and highlighting the bank's attractive valuation. It's our call of the day. Jim, you own it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's down from $425-odd a share uh, to 300 And what does that reflect? That reflects a lot of things. The, the sort of uh, collapse in capital markets activity that we all know about, uh, the potential for a recession that some of us are wondering when it's going to show up. Um, but in the meantime, what you've got is a stock here that's trading a tangible book value with pretty sizable cash flow and earnings. And this matters because although they've dampened down on their share, share buyback since the last Fed stress test, they're going to be buying back shares this year and next. And they're going to be buying them back at attractive prices. At the end of the day, there's a, there's a concept called return on equity. This is a high return on equity stock. I think it's very easy to own it here. All right, we have a lot of exposure to banks here on the desk. Jenny, you own uh, New York Community Bank Corp and some other banking names. What's your take on banking right now? So I do not want to own the big banks. And it really goes back to something Steve said before, and maybe a little bit of my own personal paranoia. But Steve said before, and this was really critical, the shadow banking risks weren't, weren't thought to be remote back in 08, 09, but they weren't. And in this kind of environment... I don't trust that I personally can analyze these big banks and actually understand what's going to go what's going to go on. So my job is to manage a portfolio that's going to deliver a steady income stream of dividends through thick and thin. And in this kind of environment, I have no idea what's off balance sheet and I don't trust that they that the big that the big banks have gotten so much more religion that they're not going to bump into the same kinds of things if it gets uglier right now. And so I don't entirely know how higher interest rates are going to work both for and against a JP Morgan, for and against Goldman. I don't know how trading revenues are going to offset in banking re- investment banking revenues at a Goldman. So what I do is I own smaller regional banks that are much less complex, much more transparent, and I can really understand exactly what is in their business and how that'll benefit me. You know, that's just me. I just don't have the skill set to understand those big, big banks. Yeah, Joe, you actually got out of Goldman because you were worried about their trading revenue, but you are in the big banks, uh, Bank of America and Morgan Stanley. I'm in Bank of America and Morgan Stanley because uh, I suspect that ultimately when the turn happens for equities, 
you will see a, a significant revenue bounce for both Merrill Lynch and for Morgan Stanley, the wealth management divisions of those two companies. So it's it's really about uh, a second derivative play on an improving equity environment uh, being traced to wealth management itself. But I think, you know, Jenny correctly identifies the environment, uh, significant challenges as it relates to the trading revenue, overall revenue growth for the big banks. Where does that ultimately come from in this type of environment? That's that's the big question I think you, you have. Yeah, to your point, earnings next week, what are you expecting? Very, very tepid at best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the guidance from CEOs is going to be critical to the overall market itself. But in terms of those actual earnings, I, I, I don't see a significant catalyst coming from that. Yeah, just a week away from some big bank earnings. We just showed you Morgan Stanley, uh, J.P. Morgan, a whole lot of big banks reporting just one week from today. All right, stocks hitting session lows this hour. Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. That's coming up next on Halftime. Welcome back to halftime. As you can see, the market's hitting session lows. Uh, the Dow down almost 600 points. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. Mike, a lot to talk about today. Yeah, plenty, Frank. And, you know, it's another instance of an inherently impatient stock market that wants to play for, you know, the turn, the moderation in growth, perhaps softening employment situation that's going to bring about a change in posture from the Fed kind of runs into really stubborn. And even if it's lagging information in the employment report, it's just stubborn and it's not moving quickly enough. Now, it's good news for Main Street. It's good that we have more jobs. It helps out on the idea that Main Street can have a softer landing. But Wall Street's struggling with what it means. And I think that it looks in every direction in the macro uh, have become a little friendlier with Treasury yields coming down. Now they're rebuilding uh, toward the recent highs. Energy as well. So oil prices had given you a little bit of uh, of a window in, in retreating and they're rebuilding. So obviously we're struggling here just above the lows from late last week. Another nasty Friday. Uh, it's been kind of a pattern. Thursdays and Fridays have been weak. The maybe good news is that sometimes uh, the kind of dynamic that you get as the market is is struggling in a messy way to try and find some real demand underneath it in terms of uh, perhaps buyers coming in at a low. You got really oversold a week ago, uh, ferocious rally for two days, and you've given up most of it by now. Yeah, Mike, I think a lot of people were hoping your midday word was either pause or pivot. Mike Santoli yeah. was midday word. Unfortunately, yeah, we can't we can't talk about that yet. Yeah, yeah, can't do it yet. All right, Mike Santoli was midday word. Thank you again, Mike. All right, coming up next, one of Jim Labenthal's down 10% today. How he's viewing this name from here. We're going to get his take on it. Stay with us. Halftime back in just a few minutes. All right, welcome back to halftime. A quick check on the markets right now. As you can see, we're pretty close to session lows right now. The Dow down just about 600 points right now. The S&P down almost 3%. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down 3.5%. All right, shares of CVS are dropping after its flagship Medicare plan. It was downgraded by the federal government. Jim, you own CVS. 
Yeah, not a not a good day here, Frank. When you're an equity investor, you're always taking risk, the risk of the unknown, and that's from which reward and opportunities are created. Um, so I, I got this news last night, and I've, I've been parsing it during the day, and I'm trying to decide, does this make me want to sell the company? I don't think so. I'm not going to rule it out, but it's certainly not today. The reason I don't think so, number one, this has been an incredibly strong performer for me over the years. And I've got to evaluate whether today's 10% drop is just an aberration and the trend is going to cons- uh, continue on. Or is it the start of something worse? This is a long-term holding. If they're downgraded one year, they could be upgraded the next year. And there's more to the company than just the Medicare ratings. So they still said, by the way, Frank, in their uh, release that they're still predicting uh, low double digits earnings per share growth over the coming years. Uh, That's against a a price-to-earnings multiple. It's around 11 times right now. Dividend yield 2.2%. It's kind of hard to sell under those conditions, but I am evaluating it. All right. Well, keeping with health care, United Health reports earnings next week. Uh, Joe, you're actually in this one. Healthcare is a sector that offers a strategic hybrid between growth value, its <clears throat> offense, defense. The valuation is reasonable. It came into the year with a significant discount to the S&P 500. Uh, so I, I think investors need to continue to maintain the exposure there. It also has pricing power. Look at a company like United Healthcare, AbbVie, which I know others on the desk own as well. Medical devices work in this environment. And certainly my favorite, which is Merck, uh, which has had a strong performance so far year to date. Overall, I think the XLV is only down 12% relative to the S&P, down nearly 24%. All right. Uh, switching gears a bit here, Delta also reports next week, one of the big airlines. Jim, you own this one. Yeah, you know, look at TSA travel accounts. They come out on a daily basis, and seven-week averages have been hovering at about 95% passenger levels compared to 2019. That's pretty good given supply constraints in the industry. Uh, Ed Bastian, who's the CEO, I said this earlier, he's really a, a clear communicator, and I'm looking forward to his comments about demand. Uh, we got some input, input from American and United, Air, United Airlines recently saying that demand is running for the fourth quarter quarter above 2019 levels. Look, the bottom line is this. We have had a goods to services handoff in the economy. That's why FedEx isn't doing so well. That's why the airlines have been doing okay, but should be doing a lot better. All right. Delta Airlines down a four and a quarter percent right now. Final trades are coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, time now for final trades. Jenny, you're first up. Okay, Verizon. You can call it a bond equivalent. You can call it a utility. But the reality is is that they have modest earnings growth ahead. They have maintained and paid a dividend for 38 years straight. They've actually raised that dividend through 0809, through the pandemic. You've got a 7% yield on a stock that's trading at seven times earnings. I don't know that it gets better for that than that in this environment. Jim. Kinder Morgan, natural gas pipeline company, uh, 6% dividend yield, buying back shares. And how is it able to do that? Because there's a lot of natural gas flowing through its pipelines, both for domestic use and for shipment abroad, which we know Europe needs natural gas, and they're going to get as much of it as they can from the U.S. through Kinder Morgan pipelines. Joe. On a down day, let's find something that is actually up and you could be optimistic about. That's Northrop Grumman trading near its all-time high above all its three major moving averages and a reasonable valuation. All right, there we go. One last check of the markets before we let you go right now. The market's at session lows right now. As you can see, uh, the Dow is down uh, about 2%, actually about 
500 or so points right now. Uh, also, the S&P down almost two and a half or more than two and a half percent. The Nasdaq down more than three and a half percent. We're also watching bond yields ticking up a bit at three point eight six right now. And that does it with for halftime. The exchange it begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.